Hey, it's Johanna Masca. This week on Press Advance, I talked to former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Hutchinson was one of the first Republicans to jump in the Republican primary. He has been consistent throughout his campaign, saying he believes Donald Trump should not run for this nomination, citing the numerous legal battles the former president finds himself in. Hutchinson may be on the right side of history, given candidate Trump was involved in a rally to encourage supporters to descend on the U.S. Capitol before we all watched as his supporters stormed the Capitol on live television. But so far, he hasn't found himself on the right side of the Republican polls. So far, he hasn't qualified for the debate stage, not meeting the 1% threshold or the small dollar donor number that he would need. But he has some strong words for the state of his party one he has been loyal to since back when Donald Trump was a Democrat. He also has some strong policy prescriptions that he believes could bring about the confidence in institutions that many on both sides of the aisle know is critical for our future and is sorely lacking. Governor Hutchinson knows his stuff, but he finds himself in a position where he's asking people to just donate a dollar so that he has a chance to debate his fellow Republicans. I had to start by asking him about the state of the Republican Party. Trump has changed the party. And just to give you a little background, uh, I started in the Republican Party uh, back when the time that Arkansas didn't have a Republican Party and we were a red dot in a blue ocean. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bill Clinton was the dominant force in Arkansas politics. He was governor when I was state party chairman. We worked hard to build a Republican Party, and it was really based upon the strength of Ronald Reagan and how he presented his conservatism of limited government and freedom and opportunity and also strength on the global stage. And, you know, we had the traditional three parts of the Republican base, which was a social conservative, economic conservative led by Jack Kemp. Then you had your defense conservatives. All three were an important part. And, to, and we, we tolerated each other because we knew we had to have everybody together if we're going to be successful. And so you could be a social conservative and you might not be the other two, or you might be a economic conservative and you might not be a social conservative. We all bound together and Ronald Reagan was able to pull us together. And today you've shifted to, you've got to be 100% pure on all elements of that even though there's a big debate about the defense side, which has really changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so that purity test has really uh, changed our party and made it more narrow uh, and you know, prevents us from getting the independent votes that we need in a general election. Yeah. And it used to be that we used to have a diversity of opinion in the party. We still do to a certain extent. You know, Susan Collins yeah. uh, was somebody yeah. that had to win in the Northeast. Today, you've got, uh, you know, Chris Sununu as governor. All of them represent different parts of the party. And we have to learn to be tolerant of those that are in agreement with us on the fundamental principles, but we have some policy disagreements. Right. And so that's, to me, how the party has changed. Trump has changed it to be more isolationist. He's trying to. That is a f- significant debate in the 2024 election. For the first time, he raised the weapon of tariffs, and he changes from the free trade, uh, more open trade uh, party. And so he has had significant policy changes, and it has become uh, much more populist uh, in nature. 
Yeah. There's always been a populist streak in our party, but he has magnified that to the extent that uh, it's the dominant part of the party. Now, I have to ask you about that because Galesburg, Illinois, my hometown, we lost Maytag. So there is this fear um, people have of globalists, quote unquote, um, they'll say. Now, I was extraordinarily blessed and worked hard on the Obama campaign and ended up traveling with him, little girl from Galesburg, Illinois, to 42 countries around the world. And it was extraordinary. I mean, seeing the impact that the U.S. has, the strength and power that the U.S. has around the world. And when we ignore regions, China and Russia are happy to fill our void. But there's this fear that Americans have that our opportunities have been given away in exchange for global business. And that sentiment, I saw Trump speaking to that sentiment. What would you say to those people in Galesburg, Illinois, about you know how the Republican Party is still, and you specifically, your policies are still designed to help them and their jobs while intervening in conflicts overseas or engaging in a global dialogue? Well, first of all, as governor of Arkansas, I, I built, helped build the steel industry in our state. We proved that we could make steel here in the United States. Uh, I recruited uh, U.S. Steel out of Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, to come to Arkansas, built a $3 billion facility, hiring 900 workers that don't have to have college degrees. They're making an average of $100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and the, and the point is that we prove that we can recruit industry, that we can make things in the United States and build our manufacturing base back. And that's what we've got to do. You know, I identify with what you said about uh, the industry that was lost, mm -hmm. you know, in uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas, where I spent 19 years raising my family. Uh, we had Whirlpool, the largest employer there, and we lost them. Yeah. And it really hurt Fort Smith and River Valley. And uh, that was uh, as a result of NAFTA at that time. And but guess what? You know, we've adjusted back. We have replaced uh, those jobs with new manufacturing jobs and and we're stronger now than we've ever been in terms of that river valley and fort smith area and the economic opportunities uh and so mistake or not way back when yeah. uh, you're right uh, uh president trump tapped into that and ronald reagan tapped into some of that too that yeah. blue collar worker so we've got to identify with him and we have to showcase that we are building and manufacturing, and, and we're going to be creating those blue-collar jobs uh, here in the country. We can do that. We have done that. So it is about what's happening locally. You know, they try to make a false dichotomy uh, with, uh, are we going to support Ukraine? Or are we going to invest in the United States right. of America? I point out that the last bill that Biden passed uh, of a spending bill was $1.2 trillion domestically. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it was a good bill. I don't think it was good money that was being spent. You contrast $1.2 trillion with $100 billion of economic uh, and military aid that we're giving to Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And you know, so you can, do, as a great country, we can do both. Yeah. And you got to measure it, but uh, you can't, 
you can't say, uh, you know, we're not going to protect the sea lanes or we're not going to protect freedom across the globe and with important allies of the United States. Well, that dichotomy, I mean, that is, he played into it. Do you think his policies, because it was always interesting to me to see, I mean, Donald Trump, he was not a Republican. He was not ideological. At the time, you know, he emerged on the scene. My grandfather, who's uh, since passed away, he was a colonel in the Air Force. And he thought Donald Trump was a clown, a showman who would, you know, go out and, uh, and be out with ladies. That was his reputation, right? But he emerged on the scene and and won over the Republican Party. Then he goes into office. And I thought, well, I don't actually know what he's going to do because we don't really know where he stands on positions. Um, So I said, I'll always root for the president. But now he's had four years where he was president of the United States. Do you think his policies helped, for example, the people in Galesburg, Illinois? No, I don't think uh, he did what he said he was going to do. Uh, and you're right. You know, he appealed to the voters because uh, he spoke their language, very blunt, very simple language. We're going to build the wall. Yeah. We're going to block Muslims from coming to the country. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're going to uh, make Mexico pay for it. Uh, you know, the wall. I mean, he made all of these promises. They didn't come true. Yeah. And, and, and we really knew they were not possible at the time, but they were simplistic, they were clear, and they identified with the challenges that Americans faced and the concerns that they had. Whenever you look at what he's done, uh, he didn't balance the budget. You know, no, he increased quite the opposite. Yeah, he increased the, <laughs> the, the uh, spending uh, for over trillions of dollars, uh, our debt. You know, he challenged the Democrats to spend more yeah. versus the conservative position. Uh, you know, I, I often wonder because they during the pandemic, and I know nobody knew what was going to happen, but we had all this PPP money go out through banks and there was no oversight. And now we know, like talk about a billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars. There's been hundreds of billions of dollars in fraud through that PPP. And that was paying people not to work. If inflation is too much money chasing not enough goods, wasn't that the driver in inflation, that legislation under Trump? Well, Sure, he spent too much. That was that was the challenge. That was the problem. Now I was a governor at the time, mm-hmm. and I know that the uh, uh, the loans to help our small businesses yes. were very important because you know they didn't have the customer base, and so there was some aid that was absolutely critical that was passed in a bipartisan way. But as time went on, uh, the uh, you know President Trump was just spending money to challenge the Democrats, as I was saying, and he started the challenge with the inflation by spending too much money. And then, of course, President Biden picked it up even to a larger extent. And as governor, we got too much money. Uh, I started turning it down and particularly. Tell me, what were you turning down? Because I, I just saw that DeSantis is turning down rural wastewater investment that was going to help that water. And he turned it down for political reasons. And I'm curious, what are those decisions like when you have money that you could spend on investment? Why would you not take it? And what are the the grants going towards? I didn't turn money down for investments like okay. rural broadband uh, to and, and of course, 
course, I supported the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a governor. I was head of the National Governors Association, and that was important. I would I supported it during the Trump administration, and I certainly continued to support that. But what we turned down was the extra compensation uh, that uh, you know encouraged able-bodied people to sit on the couch yeah. rather than get back to work. Yeah. Uh, when we were coming out of the pandemic. And so it was too much money. It was extra compensation, more than what was ordinarily given. When was that? I, I believe that was in the Biden administration, uh, but it was it was too much. And then we also uh, turned down some of the, uh, uh, the third round, I believe it was, of rental assistance. Yes. <laughs> we, we had too much in the pipeline already. And so, you know, those were decisions I made as a governor, and we had too much money in the pipeline, and it it had inflationary pressure as a result of that. These topics, these things actually affect people every single day. But most of the time, our media circus is focused on Trump or whatever gets oxygen. Um, Today, when we're recording this, there's a new statement out from Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States. And I have to share it with you because I know when I first saw you emerge on the stage, it was because you were saying, under these investigations, under these circumstances, he should not run for president. I I will share with you the statement so that you can read it. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it is the statement from Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States. Wow. All caps. On Sunday night, while I was with my family, having just arrived from Turning Point event in Florida where I won the straw poll against other Republican candidates with 85%, 85.7%. By the way, the straw polls, like it's just like people at a, you know, event that are already inclined to support you. They were his crowd to begin with. <laughs> yeah, they were his crowd. But this is what he's saying. With all the polls showing me leading as a Republican primary with very substantial numbers, almost everyone predicting I will be the Republican nominee for president. And as I am leading Democrat Joe Biden by the polls, horrifying news for our country was given to me by my attorneys. Deranged. I just, I can't imagine if President Obama called a federal prosecutor deranged, but deranged Jack Smith, the prosecutor with Joe Biden's DOJ, sent a letter again on Sunday night stating that I am the target of a January 6th grand jury investigation and giving me four short days to report to the grand jury, which almost always means an arrest and indictment. He goes on (laughs) in this statement. Now, this is the third such situation Donald Trump has used to his own benefit and his own oxygen. It was Ronald Reagan in 1982, who appointed you as U.S. attorney for the Western District of Arkansas. So you have some experience in these cases. I have. Can you tell me a little bit of what's going on here? Well, sure. And and first, I have a significant amount of experience in the federal courtroom, uh, both as a prosecutor, but also as a defense attorney. Mm. And so uh, I've been in front of the jury. I've handled uh, scores of uh, criminal cases, major criminal cases. And uh, I looked at this statement, I've read it, and of course, he has actually one thing right. And he says in here that it is a very sad and dark period for our nation. Mm -hmm. And it is, in fact, sad whenever you have a former president that's charged first with uh, uh, mishandling classified information and use it as entertainment tools, our nation's secrets. But then now you have uh, what appears to be an 
oncoming indictment uh, for January 6th and his conduct at that time. Uh, now, I've called for him to step aside because uh, you've got to put the country first. And, you know, everybody wants to run for president, but our country is the most important thing, and this is going to be such a distraction. And so the next year, we're not going to be talking about uh, the economic issues that our families face or border security. He's going to be in court. He's going to be defending himself, and all of his energy needs to be devoted to that. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a distraction for our nation, and that's the reason that most people under those circumstances would say, uh, the presidency is too important to have this distraction during one of the most important elections in our history. But also, the way he approaches this undermines our rule of law and our criminal justice system. I've been in the court many times, and you don't have uh, defendants publicly calling the prosecutor deranged yeah. or criticizing uh, the attorney general of the United States or a judge, uh, as he has done in other cases. And this undermines confidence in our system, particularly whenever you're a former president. Mm -hmm. And whenever he talks about this is about complete and total political weaponization of law enforcement, he's the one that started that terrible habit. Yes. <laughs> whenever he was president of the United States, he was trying to pressure the attorney general of the United States to prosecute certain individuals or to close particular cases. He weaponized it, and, uh, and now he's already pledged to do it again if he gets reelected. And that's the challenge. Clearly, he's made it clear and his supporters have made it clear that it's retribution time if he gets elected. Yeah. I, this is, we don't need retribution. We need calmness. We need, this is a very dangerous time in our country. It is. And uh, whenever you look at the challenges that we face, we don't need this distraction and this undermining of our institutions. I mean, it was heartbreaking on January 6th to see former military members, current military members, who were believing Donald Trump that this election was stolen and that they needed to descend on the Capitol without clear instructions of what to do and without calling off that. I think sometimes, you know, when you've seen it up close, you know that it's fragile and it depends on our own ethical behavior both parties have problems at different times, and we've got to hold ourselves accountable if we're going to have the peace and prosperity and the country that we all love. But how do you tell someone in Galesburg and believes that the election was stolen? How do you tell someone why you are so concerned about Donald Trump winning the nomination? Because he thinks Donald Trump is the victim. Well, it's because uh, Donald Trump has intentionally misled people. He misled his supporters, bringing them here on January 6th uh, for whatever. Well, he brought them here to rally against the peaceful transfer of power, mm -hmm. and he misled them. So you first got to recognize that. And then secondly, you know, it is a human system, as you pointed out, and there's errors and there's human errors and there's biases that come into place and thank goodness we had founding fathers that put checks and balances in place yes. and and so yesterday uh, i announced uh, my plan to reform federal law enforcement and it doesn't defund the fbi it doesn't uh, uh you know 
take away everything that they have a responsibility for in counterterrorism, but it makes certain corrections. And they did, uh, they have too much on their plate. Uh, they've made errors. It needs to be transformed. There, there needs to be uh, more accountability, more focus of the FBI and all of federal law enforcement. So I had a, I laid out a eight-point plan to reform federal law enforcement. So it's a human system. We're going to make the corrections that need be, but let's not uh, say things like uh, we've got to defund the FBI or we've got to, uh, you know, it's so weaponized that, that it, it's not fixable because it is. Yeah. And you raise a good point because this isn't just Trump saying these things anymore. He has people in Congress saying these things. I was surprised by DeSantis's plan where he said he was going to do away with some of the post 9-11 restructuring of the FBI that was designed for more information sharing and to keep us safe. You were in the administration post 9-11 and involved in this. Uh, I was. Uh in Homeland Security post 9-11, and the 9-11 Commission report came out, and one of the big findings was that the errors we made, we were too siloed. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the FBI uh, on their enforcement side did not know some of the intelligence that was collected, and we weren't sharing information. And so, we worked very hard to make sure we had the proper sharing of information so if there's a terrorist threat, uh, we can respond to it appropriately. And I looked at this, and it is different than what a lot of the Western countries have, where they separate their investigations from their intelligence gathering. Uh, but let's not uh, throw that out and rebuild the silos. What's important is that we have the checks and balances in place. And so uh, whenever the FBI collects intelligence in their counterterrorism mission, uh, if they're going to be querying that for U.S. citizens, Congress needs to be understand that, and they need to report to Congress. We need to elevate the privacy and civil liberties uh, uh, division within uh, the FBI to a higher level so they have more authority and more checks and balances. I want to take the drug enforcement responsibility away from the FBI, mm. put it over in the, to the DEA, uh, where we still have our emphasis on fentanyl from the ICE out of Homeland Security and the DEA, but let the FBI concentrate on their counterterrorism mission, on their traditional crimes uh, that uh, they investigate. So we narrow their jurisdiction, we get them more focused, more accountable. That's how you respond to it versus recreating silos in our government. No, you're right. And that's interesting because I was watching the House committee grill Christopher Ray, FBI director, and it was fascinating because obviously, you know, there were some Democrats and Republicans agreeing don't use, you know, Americans information on some of these issues. But to the extent that they were attacking him, I mean, he was an appointment of Republicans. Currently, there are a lot of accusations that he's weaponizing the agency. And, you know, I think that the average people in, you know, Galesburg or in Des Moines, Iowa, or they don't understand. They don't have enough time. They're raising kids to understand the ins and outs of this. But some of the stuff I was hearing, again, DeSantis said he wants to essentially split up the FBI, move it back to field offices. You know, he wanted to get rid of some of this system. And I was going, wait a second, doesn't this put us in a dangerous situation? 
Well, exactly, exactly, because that's recreating silos. It's uh, breaking down uh, the uh, control, really, of the Department of Justice, the management of the FBI, if you move them out away from the Department of Justice. And that's a, a little bit of a separate debate as to where you're going to locate the new headquarters yes. uh, of the FBI. And, uh, you know, I think there is a, a good case to be made. Actually, Donald Trump made this point uh, that you want the FBI close enough that the Department of Justice can keep an eye on them. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you put them out uh, away from D.C. area uh, Distance-wise, then uh, it might be a little bit more difficult. I'm in favor of moving out, like some of the labs, you know, the forensics. These can be out uh, in, the in the different, yeah, in the field. But whenever you're looking at management of the of our counterterrorism mission, uh, that needs to be uh, close to the uh, Department of Justice here in Washington D.C. Uh, and so it needs to be fixed. And one, one thing that's really important is that the FBI has developed uh, an independent spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that independent spirit has got them into trouble yeah. uh, where the agents are not properly managed. They're not uh, checks and balances there. And so I want to make sure that they're integrally a part of the Department of Justice, just like the DEA. The right. DEA and FBI are all part of the Department of Justice, but the FBI has historically had a uniquely singular uh, independence. Is DeSantis any better than Trump? <laughs> well, I'm running against him, <laughs> uh, you know, and I love the field. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think right now what you see is that uh, DeSantis is going after the same vote that Trump has. Yeah. And, uh, and, and versus broadening the base and trying to appeal to independence and proving that you can attract those in the fall. He's doubling down uh, on the right side of the equation and uh, making sure that he's running to the right of Donald Trump. Uh, And that's hard because Donald Trump, he's not really a conservative. He will go where he needs to go to get elected and say what he needs to get elected. So Chris Christie is trying to make this point. Do you know Chris Christie? Oh, sure. Of course, yeah. What do you make of his candidacy? Well, uh, I mean, Chris Christie, I like him. Uh, you know, he's from New Jersey. He's got a little bit of a rough edge. Yeah. Uh, and he's, but he's a former United States attorney, just like I was a former right. U.S. attorney. A- and uh, he speaks very boldly. We both uh, believe that if you're going to run against Donald Trump, uh, the key to the nomination is to take him on. Yeah. And uh, you can't. And a lot of other candidates are laying down and saying, uh, no, we're not going to take him on. We're just hoping something will happen yeah. <laughs> that will change the dynamics. you got to show the difference. It's just so hard because in trying to do this, the numbers on the money and the support, they're just not adding up at some point. I kept saying, oh, it's early. There's a lot of appetite for someone who's not Donald Trump. And this last fundraising round, we didn't see significant numbers for those who are taking on Donald Trump directly. Why? Well, first of all, we, uh, I was the third one in the race. Uh, so I was the third one to announce. Since then, we've had nine more. Yeah. So many of the donors are sitting back and saying, uh, y'all got to straighten it out. There's too many candidates out there. We're going to see who, who shapes up. Uh, and rises to the top as the main candidate against against Donald Trump. And you've got to look at it that 
you know, Donald Trump is in a very high number, what, 50% or more of the Republican vote. Uh, Ron DeSantis has dropped dramatically, uh, and he, last poll, had him under uh, 20%. Everybody else is in single digits. Yeah. So it's so everybody is, is struggling to raise the money, and, uh, and, and because we have a number in the field. So we're going to have to slog this out. Uh, I've got to get on the debate stage, and so I'll refer everybody to asa2024.com. Are you giving out any gimmicks? Because I'm so curious about these gimmicks. I guess, you know, I asked Francis Suarez. He's got a Venmo handle he's giving out. But I was going, I don't think that's legal with FEC guidelines to just take donations through Venmo, is it? Well, th that's the challenge. Everybody's trying different things and uh, trying to be very, very creative. We're doing the same thing. We've got to get to 40,000 donors. And so, you know, we're, uh, you know, uh, telling folks that if, if you can uh, recruit 100 people, you know, you can uh, help us to get there and we'll give you uh, a certain percent of what, what we bring in. Uh, that's illegal a, a because it's a contractor. Uh, but we're willing to incentivize. We're looking at the rules. We've got to all get to that debate stage. And so that's one of the challenges. Uh, it encourages a little bit of strained creativity. I can see the benefit to having voices who have a lot of experience on the debate stage. Of course, I watched the Democrats the last time around when, uh, of course, of ultimately Joe Biden became our nominee. And there was almost too many people on the debate stage. Is there a amount that's too many? Uh, sure. Uh, I mean, nobody wants to have uh, a two-tiered debate, uh, but this is the first debate. And so you got to set a reasonable criteria. And then you're going to have subsequent debates that you're going to have an increasing threshold to, to uh, participate. And so there is a natural progression, and it's going to narrow the field some. But let's don't get too far ahead of the voters. Mm. The voters really want to see uh, the candidates and how they compare with each other and how uh, their their views differ. Mm -hmm. uh, who wants to have a debate uh, without Ron DeSantis in there and the contrast that we can have? Or uh, Chris Christie. Yeah. I mean, these are uh, a back and forth that's needed. Who wants to have a debate without Mike Pence uh, being able to uh, talk about uh, his role and how he uh, differs from uh, President Trump? So let's get them all in there. And then as time goes on, you're going to set higher criteria to narrow the field. So at some point, it always happens that people start consolidating around different leaders. I've been curious because some leaders, you know, you naturally gravitate to. And some leaders are kind of hard to gravitate to. DeSantis didn't always have a great reputation among fellow governors or even congressional leaders. Do you think there's any scenario in which people rally around DeSantis as the alternative to Trump? I don't see that happening right now. Of course, he has a lot of money. Yes. And so that can patch over a lot of ills yeah. and, and uh, problems but in a campaign. Tim Scott has a lot of money. He does. Could Tim Scott be the person that folks would rally around? Tim Scott, of course, probably doesn't have as much foreign policy experience um, as, you know, some of the other candidates. Uh, he's been a senator. He's been a congressional uh, representative. Um, he's had a lot of state experience and business experience. But is Tim Scott the person? Well, 
I'm the person, first of all. <laughs> so, yes. So uh, all of that, everybody brings something unique to the campaign. Tim Scott, with his uh, faith and his story, is a great addition to the campaign. Uh, we've got former governors in there. I make the case that what distinguishes me is that no one has the breadth of experience at the federal and state level that I bring. Hmm. You know, as a federal prosecutor, head of the DEA, uh, Undersecretary of Homeland Security after 9-11, and then a governor for eight years has balanced the budget. Foreign policy experience as well as, as the real economic experience of, of building uh, jobs, creating jobs in our state. How do you tell people who are hesitant, they feel like government hasn't worked for them and they want someone who isn't a career politician, how do you tell them that that experience is actually a strength that they should realize? Well, you don't tell them that because, uh, you know, somebody asked me, are you part of the swamp? And and, uh, I, you <laughs> know, and the answer is, uh, I left the swamp 20 years ago. Uh, and so, uh, and while I was here, I, f I fought it. The last time that we had a balanced budget in this country was when I was in the United States Congress. Mm. And so I've got a history of fighting the establishment. Uh, I've been uh, in Arkansas. Uh, I've, you know, uh, so... You balance, obviously, the experience that is important. And you also need to know uh, where you have the experience to drain the swamp yeah. or to reduce the administrative state uh, that I do believe needs uh, changing. One of my policy positions is to reduce uh, the non-defense federal employment by 10%. Mm. Now, that's not only... That's actually pulling the plug on part of the swamp because it's a very specific proposal. And by the way, you know, the people that work in government, uh, they're really good people and they do great work. They are. Uh, I headed at the DEA, Homeland Security, nobody worked harder than they did. So this is not a slap on them at all, but it's our, uh, it's just what I did as governor that uh, I put in a hiring freeze. And we didn't fire anybody, but as time went on and they left government, we looked at the ways that we can uh, consolidate, jobs. consolidate jobs. You know, there's another candidate out there that proposes actually uh, term limits for federal employees. Oh, is that right? Uh, Vivek. <laughs> Vivek has so, got term limits for federal employees. Yeah. I know he hasn't raised the voting age. Uh, he has He's wrong on all those points. <laughs> But it is, it's interesting um, because, so essentially he's saying you can only be in the government for so long, but actually like that experience can help government, right? Well, the experience helps, but just as importantly, the cost to the government. I headed up the DEA. It takes a long time to train a DEA agent. Mm -hmm. You're going to tell them you can only serve eight years. We're going to lose all of that experience and that knowledge. And you got to retrain people and rehire people. And how do you recruit people when you only got an eight-year career? Mm. None of that makes sense. Yeah. And you magnify that across our law enforcement agencies. Uh, and, and so it would cost the government money. But he has no experience, and he's somehow getting a lot of support. How? Well, because they're simplistic phrases that uh, catch on to people. But whenever you think about them, they don't work. He's got that Peter Thiel money, too. What about regulating tech? I mean, this is something growing up in Galesburg, Illinois, I remember when my dad said, nobody's ever going to order pizza on, you know, the Internet, Johanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that didn't age well. <laughs> so 
what do you think the role of the federal government in regulating technology is? Because I've seen our industries and our jobs in some cases completely gutted. I mean, we saw Napster change the music industry completely. We've seen Hollywood is currently striking to try to change it so that artificial intelligence can't write the scripts of the future. It's so scary to people when their jobs, because they could, we could all be replaced by artificial intelligence. I suppose artificial intelligence versions of us could be here. What they is wouldn't the be job? near as good as what we're doing. <laughs> what it be? <laughs> but what is the role of government in regulating that industry? Let me answer a couple ways. Uh, first of all, uh, technology, whenever it is surfacing and we see it as posing threats or uh, being subject to regulation, uh, let's first see if there's a technological response. Uh, you, usually there's technologies that uh, and competition that solves some of those problems. You mentioned Napster. You know, the music industry has a, a, a adjusted, and of course, there was government regulation to make sure that copyright and talent well, and they was them. protected. <laughs> they went after them. Uh, and so, uh, let's let's be careful about moving a heavy-handed government regulation hmm. into the technology sector. But what? About like intellectual property, you know, right now you've got intellectual property rights of the minions, but you've got a tech company, YouTube, that has all sorts of people who say, oh, it's user generated content. If they rip your, you know, minion, you have to identify it and you have to come to us and you have to tell us because we have no regulation of the internet. That is the stuff that companies are facing, that individuals are facing. They could have a good idea, put it on the internet and it's somebody else's tomorrow. Well, let's think about the internet, though, and let's think about social media. There's uh, a lot of dangerous things can be put on social media. Who do you want to control what's put on social media? Not many Americans trust the government enough to say they're going to control speech on social media. Mm. Now, the second option is that that uh, the companies themselves have a responsibility. Now, uh, they haven't done a very good job. Uh, we've seen them suppress conservative speech. They've, they've, uh, they've seen them listen to government interference with them and respond to that. And so uh, they haven't done best. I know we don't want to shift the control of censorship and regulating who's in social media to the government. Now, one of the things that I proposed yesterday, we've seen this challenge of shadow banning, where the government goes to a social media company and say, you've got a couple of accounts that's not putting out the truth. You ought to get rid of them. Normally, it's because they've identified them as foreign accounts, right? That's what essentially Ray was saying, that they've identified that these are foreign, untrustworthy agents that are putting something out, and they're saying, please shut down this account. Correct. There is There can be a national security interest in doing it, but the federal judge, Louisiana, found that it was broader than that. Hmm. And it is broader than that. I know from personal experience from clients that have had their accounts shut down simply because the government goes to them and uh, makes them aware or tells them they ought to shut those accounts down. And that's shadow banning. Now, we can't sh shut it down because there is a national security interest in some instances that the government ought to go to them and say, hey, you've got some terrorist activity or some foreign agents here. But there ought to be some transparency. So my proposal is simply that any 
uh, that uh, reporting to private companies of uh, closing down account needs to be reported to the Intelligence Committee of the United States Congress. Mm. And that way there's some transparency of it, some oversight of it, and that's how you address those issues. It's always the checks and balances that work the best. I am so truly grateful because I know that these are the big heavy debates that actually affect people's lives every day. So I guess the last thing I'd be curious about is, I mean, you've been experiencing the media of <laughs> this era of a presidential campaign. And what would you say, you know, if there's going to be a way to have good debates and good issues come up in an era where there's a entertainer on the stage with his own social media platform, which I don't hear a lot from the House saying they want to regulate that social media platform, which is interesting. But what what is the role and responsibility of the media, and are they playing the right role right now? Well, the challenge is for the media that they're trying to have listeners, and uh, so they want to give uh, some entertainment value that uh, will draw the listeners. And that's why you see some of the major medias having town hall meetings with Donald Trump. Uh, they have uh, town hall meetings with uh, those that uh, you know they believe is going to bring an audience there. And so the media has a responsibility of balancing uh, that value with the serious policy discussions and the truth and making sure all the candidates have that access. I think the media has been terrific. Uh, you know, I've had uh, plenty of opportunity to make my case, uh, but they have to continue that. And anytime uh, they put a priority on uh, the entertainment value over truth and substance, then we're all going to be going down the wrong path. Lesser for it. I guess I do have one last question, which is, how long is your wife going to let you continue this without <laughs> a clear path to nomination? <laughs> what is her tolerance, <laughs> Mrs. Oh, that's an interesting way you phrase that question. <laughs> well, listen, she believes there's a clearer path to the nomination than anyone. Hmm. Uh, she believes in what we're doing, the importance of it. She's very supportive. She's campaigned with me in Iowa. And uh, she'll be back. And uh, so she's very, very excited about uh, this campaign. She was incredible first lady of Arkansas, and she believes in the mission. And uh, so I'm lucky. We'll, we've been married for 49 years. Wonderful. And uh, we're likely to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary in a pre- uh, or, or an early primary state. So uh, stay tuned. <laughs> oh, she's probably super excited <laughs> exactly. about that. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. And hopefully maybe at some point I'll talk to her too. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm really grateful to Governor Hutchinson for having the backbone to stand up for what he believes, even when it's difficult. Look, we shall see what happens. But throughout it all, we are going to continue to respect, empower, include. If you're enjoying this podcast, give us a review. Send it to a friend. I'm really grateful for the community we're building with this podcast. Those who have found me on social media at Johanna Masca and on News Nation, where you can see us all chiming in on the latest breaking news with the ability to respect our viewers. And that's what's most important to me. Let me know what you thought of the interview. <laughs>